from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch, friends. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I am sitting in Tony's chair today, and I am thrilled to be with you. We have a lot to talk about today because uh, th- this is kind of the uh, another version of the show about uh, why elections matter, why elections have consequences. We're going to talk about some uh, rule changes that the Biden administration is making and much more. Uh, before we get to that, you can find the website at TonyPerkins.com. You can follow Tony on Gab at, at Tony underscore Perkins. I encourage you to do so. Also, download the Stand Firm app. It's on the App Store and on the Google Play Store, so you can get everything FRC has to offer you, including Washington Watch, from the convenience of your phone, wherever you are, and can get Internet. The church in China, what are we talking about today? The church in China is trying to make China's Christians more loyal to the Chinese communists, and part of their loyalty efforts are writing a new version of the New Testament. We're going to talk, uh, uh, we're going to think biblically about loyalty with David Clawson at the end of the program today. We're also going to speak with Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost about their litigation against the Biden administration. And also, uh, we are going to talk a little later with Valerie Huber about a new Biden administration rule on Title X that would direct more money to Planned Parenthood. We always know that's a big goal of theirs. We'll find out more about that in a moment. But the first story of the day. We believe that we have to do the research that it takes to make sure that we're uh, incorporating innovation and getting all of those types of treatments and therapies out there to the American people. That is the voice of HHS Secretary Javier Becerra. The National Institute of Health made today, recently, within about the last hour or so, an announcement on its fetal tissue research policy, which, under the Trump administration, prevented taxpayer dollars from being used to fund such research. Health HHS Secretary uh, Becerra had talked about this yesterday. In those remarks, he said... We believe that we have to do the research that it takes to make sure that we're incorporating innovation and getting all those types of treatment and therapies out there to the American people. For Becerra and the left, this means using fetal tissue from aborted babies, even those that have been acquired through trafficking. Well, with me now to talk about this announcement is Dr. David Prentice. He's the vice president and research director for the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Dr. Prentice. Welcome back to the program. Good to be with you, Joseph. Well, tell us first, for those who may be uninitiated, when when we say fetal tissue, what are we talking about? Fetal tissue. It, it, and it, it, trying not to be too graphic, but we're talking about body parts from aborted babies, babies that have been aborted, and there are literally uh, tissue procurement people is what they are called, which is a a euphemism for somebody that's basically scavenging corpses for body parts, baby brains, baby hearts, baby livers, other body parts. They collect these from Planned Parenthood clinics and other abortuaries, and then they will pass them on to researchers who think that they need fetal tissue to do various type of experiments, to test uh, drugs and chemicals, or to just see what's happening at some point 
during human development. The sad fact is that uh, this is really antiquated research. Obviously, it's unethical. We're scavenging body parts, just like scavenging parts from old used cars. Dr. Prentice? And then, yeah. We, did we, we got a glimpse into this a few years ago with the uh, Center for Medical Progress videos, right? Mm -hmm. David Leiden kind exactly. of did that expose and just kind of exposed how that works. They're literally, you know, purchasing brains, purchasing eyes, purchasing right. kidneys, things like that. Right. And, in fact, they were misleading many women who went in with informed consent forms that said something like aborted fetal tissue has been used to research and cure AIDS, diabetes, HIV, and a number of other things, which obviously weren't true. So they were you know, misleading, misinforming uh, in terms of the consent. Women would, uh, thinking they're doing something that might have a good benefit, sign over the corpses of their aborted children. And then, as, as I mentioned, they're taking these brains and kidneys and other organs and, and parting them out, uh, selling them, literally. So, uh, so what is the policy that, that, that they have announced today? What does it do? Well, let, let's first look at what the Trump administration had done. They had shut down what's called intramural research with fetal tissue, meaning government scientists at NIH and other government labs. And then uh, extramural research, in other words, university researchers that were using this fetal tissue had to go through an ethics advisory board review. Is this research ethical? Are you providing the right information, informed consent, and so on. In full disclosure, I was on that ethics advisory board last year. We looked at 14 grants and contracts, only one of which came even close to providing any sort of ethical oversight. We rejected all the others. So the Trump administration was shutting down fetal tissue research and, more importantly, taxpayer funds. You're in my taxpayer funds being used to do that. Well, uh, this started uh, with the Trump administration over two years ago. What the Biden administration and Secretary Becerra did today was 180-degree uh, reversal. Uh, they've done away with any sort of ethical overview of this. They have decided that, yes, government scientists can use our taxpayer dollars to traffic in these aborted baby body parts and use them for research. Uh, there will be no ethical oversight. The, the foxes will be guarding the hen house, so to speak, so NIH researchers will review the science and then big check mark and send out millions of dollars for research with aborted baby parts. Now, th there was a letter that several Democrat members of Congress wrote to HHS encouraging this rule change. And in that, they said that fetal tissue research had led to an numerous medical advances, was their, their phrase, including treatments for COVID-19 that they specifically mentioned. Is that true? It is not true at all. Uh, in fact, aborted fetal tissue has never been used to make any vaccines. We hear often about the polio vaccine. That wasn't using fetal tissue. That was using some cells that were in the lab. Uh, they've talked about various drugs that have been made using fetal tissue. 
doesn't happen. They're not produced with any fetal tissue. This is all uh, trying to paint a nice picture about a need for aborted baby tissues and organs for research, when the fact is uh, there is no need for that. It has not produced any good results, and in fact, there are ethical, better scientific ways to do this research. And let's talk about what some of those better ways are, because it's hard for me to, uh, as you described the, the lack of necessity for this, is this really just about money? It really is about money and a desire uh, just to use that fetal tissue. But there are ample uh, alternatives now. And, in fact, the Trump administration was pouring more money, millions more dollars into these types of alternatives uh, as of, again, a couple of years ago, adult stem cells are one key alternative. We hear so often about embryonic stem cells and fetal tissue and all of the great treatments and cures when the fact is nobody's been cured using fetal tissue or embryonic stem cells. But there are over 2 million people around the globe whose health is better, whose lives have been saved with adult stem cells. Uh, you, your listeners might hear about a, a research model called humanized mice. Now, don't get a picture of Mickey Mouse in your head for that. But what they've done is they've added some human cells to these mice, for example, to, so that they have a human immune system in. So you can test drugs on the mice rather than going straight to people. This is one of the things they claim they need aborted fetal tissue for, but the fact is you can make more mice and better uh, research mice using tissue after somebody's been born or using adult stem cells. Uh, there are even these things called organoids now formed from adult stem cells or what are called induced pluripotent stem cells where you reprogram a skin cell to make it more flexible and what they found is they can recapitulate normal development for say a liver or even a brain and watch that growth in the lab and learn about development that way ethically rather than have to go take aborted baby parts to do this research so there are many many other ways to do this it's better science and obviously better ethics Right. It is disheartening to to hear that this would be done really not out of necessity, but more it seems on just the moral principle that we want to be able to make money on these things and we want to be able to do it because not doing it kind of implicates what it is morally, so they just want to open the door to do so. But and another concern, because everybody is pro-research, right? Because we like right. finding cures for things. Is, there, is this a... Um, a scenario in which money that could be spent doing things that are ethical and productive will be spent doing things that are both unethical and unproductive? Are we going to lose money to better research? Yeah, we're, we're wasting money as well as lives, of course, uh, by putting so much taxpayer funds into fetal tissue research. Again, it's been unproductive for, frankly, over 100 years. All of the claims that are made about successes are false. And in the meantime, we have patient-focused research using adult stem cells and umbilical cord blood stem cells 
is actually helping people now. So you're mm-hmm. taking money away from patients and successful therapies to do this grotesque research. How long is the, the, and they announced today that there was going to be a rule change. How long does this process take? Well, unfortunately, this one begins immediately. It's a matter of it, it not really publishing what's called a rule and having to have it reviewed and so on. This is more or less an edict from Secretary Becerra to National Institutes of Health that they no longer have to worry about an ethical review, that virtually immediately uh, government scientists can start ordering baby body parts for their research and resume that taxpayer-funded research with fetal tissue. It's something that uh, is going to be happening probably tomorrow. Well, that is discouraging. You can hear the music very quickly. What should people be doing in response to this? I think the first thing is to contact your elected representatives and say, we don't want this. It's not necessary. We want things that are going to help patients and not just uh, help scientists uh, achieve their own ends. Dr. David Prentice from the Charlotte Lozier Institute, thank you so much for your time and for your diligence on this issue and keeping us informed. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks, Joseph. Now, coming up, we will talk about another effort by the Biden Biden administration to undo the pro-life policies put into place under President Trump. This one will funnel taxpayer dollars to Planned Parenthood by opening back up a loophole that the Trump administration had closed. Stay tuned for that discussion after the break. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org slash Bible, and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org slash Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. In our time, North Korea remains one of the world's most mysterious countries. Unfortunately, what we do know about North Korea indicates the country is also one of the world's worst abusers of human rights, including violations of religious freedom. The North Korean regime has engaged in an intense crackdown on religion for decades. Today, few religious believers remain, and those who do face grave danger. The secretive nature of the regime, nicknamed the Hermit Kingdom, makes it difficult for American leaders to address these human rights issues. Yet, even though options are limited, the gravity of the situation calls on Western countries to take every action possible to relieve the suffering of the North Korean people, a people who have no chance of speaking up for themselves. To learn more about this important issue, check out FRC's publication titled North Korea, the World's Foremost Violator of Religious Freedom. To access the information you need to stay informed, including a list of policy proposals, go to frc.org slash North Korea. 
Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation and the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backelman for Tony today. The Biden administration is moving to revoke Trump-era changes that prevented groups like Planned Parenthood from taking funds from the Title X program at clinics that perform abortions. Under President Trump's Protect Life rule, Planned Parenthood had to choose between dropping their abortion services from any location that gets Title $10 or moving those operations off-site. Ultimately, Planned Parenthood decided it didn't want to deal with the hassle and dropped out of the program altogether. But now, the Biden administration is looking to overturn the rule and let more tax dollars flow to its friends at Planned Parenthood. With me now to talk about this is Valerie Huber, who basically wrote the Title X rule for the Trump administration. She is the former U.S. Special Representative for Global Women's Health at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Valerie, welcome back to the program. Do we have Valerie? We think we have Valerie, and we're going to get her right back on the line because we're talking about Title X here, and we're, we're, we're going to track down Valerie Huber because um, she's, going to, she's going to be able to tell us what it is that the Title X rule did, and we're all going to wait with bated breath for a moment because I think we're going to get her, and I don't want to steal her thunder. Um, and actually, she just knows a lot more about it than I do. But... Title 10 is this is is a rule, and this is interesting how Planned Parenthood responded to this because I had I, I teased talk, referred to this just a moment ago. But Planned Parenthood did something um, that was surprising to some, but also may have been principled in the fact that Planned Parenthood decided, forced to choose between money and abortion, what did they choose? They actually chose abortion, and in the, there's this long long conversation about uh, whether what Planned Parenthood values more, money or abortion. In this case, uh, because of this Trump administration rule, uh, they made the choice that they were going to uh, prefer uh, abortion to money. And now I think we have Valerie with us. Valerie, welcome back to the program. Hi there. We had a bad connection. Sorry well, about that. Uh, n no trouble at all. It, it is. Uh, it's the internet, and I actually always tend to blame uh, Zuckerberg or somebody in the uh, in, in the internet <laughs> space who's spying on us and doesn't want us to talk to each other because they interfere in all sorts of ways. But uh, catch us up here a little bit. Tell us uh, a little background on Title Ten and and what it did and why this rule change matters. 
Well, it matters a whole lot. And, I, you know, the, the Biden administration is turning into an advocacy organization for Planned Parenthood, aren't they? What we tried to do under the Trump administration was to make sure that women who needed uh, family planning services, particularly those who are um, economically impoverished, would get them, but it wouldn't become a spigot for uh, referring to Planned Parenthood or other abortion providers. We aren't surprised that the Biden administration uh, turned this around, but it was really interesting looking at their revised um, proposed rule. They even quoted uh, Planned Parenthood and their need to do fundraising under the Trump administration to make up for what they lost in Title X as an example of how revising the rule would be a cost savings. What? A cost savings for who? For Planned Parenthood having to fundraise versus get $60 million a year from us, the taxpayers? Are you, are you saying that the Biden administration effectively views Planned Parenthood as an extension of the government? And because it had to fundraise, we have to backfill that? That's what it sounds like, yeah. It's crazy. Well, and it is a cozy you know, relationship. <laughs> it's a very cozy relationship. You know, I also noticed something else. Under the Trump administration, when we put in a proposed rule for, for Title X, we had over 200,000 comments. We kept the comment period open for 60 days. 99-plus percent of those were those who were opposed to the rule. And we had to read everyone, every single one of those comments. I looked at how many people had put comments in so far this morning, mm -hmm. and there were less than 20 so we really need to make sure that there are plenty of comments specifically giving the reason why this is a bad idea and it needs to make it needs to be by those who value life who care about poor women getting services but not using our taxpayer dollars to promote abortion that's a, that's a really important point, and, and I'm glad that you have highlighted what I think is a sobering statistic, but in so much of public policy and, and government in general, the side that cares the most wins. And right. when we are not even bothering to communicate with our elected officials, it makes it a lot harder to get, you know, to get what we want from our elected officials. How can people make a comment? How can people contribute to this conversation? Well, they need to go on the Federal Register. All they have to do is really do a search for uh, Biden's Title X rule, and they'll come up. And they just click something, make a comment. And I want to tell you, as, as the person responsible for reviewing all 200,000 of those comments, along with my colleagues, even oppositional comments can make a difference because it makes us think of things that we hadn't considered. So your listeners don't need to think that it's necessarily um, futile. And not only that, they, the Biden administration needs to hear from pro-life Americans what matters to them. And they need to register. They only, have 30, they only have 30 days to do it. We gave the electorate 60 days. They've only got 30. This is a quick turnaround, and we need to show up. Well, that, that's a great point. Sounds like they are trying to fast track it. How long is this process going to take before they can change the rule and start funneling money, more money back to Planned Parenthood? Well, they have a very quick turnaround, and it's going to be easy to make that turnaround if they only have 100 comments. 
if they have 200,000 comments, it's going to take them a lot longer because they are required to review every single one of them. They want the final rule out by the end of this fiscal year so that they can start the spigots again to plan parenthood. Well, Valerie, I mean, this is a really good point, and I think um, everybody listening out here, take this in mind. We go to the Federal Registry and look for Biden's Title X rule. Is that correct, Valerie? Is that how we should find that? That's right. Yep. And let's clog up, you know, throw a wrench in the works, and let's delay this until we get another election. Uh, Valerie Huber, thank you so much for, for taking your time and uh, letting us know what we can do to make a difference. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And coming up, we're going to actually continue talking about this Title X rule. We're going to talk about a lawsuit out of Ohio uh, to protect the pro-life rule. We're going to talk to the Attorney General in Ohio about their lawsuit against the Biden administration and this rule. Don't go away. We'll talk about it next. The history of religious persecution in China is extensive, and many are not aware of the current oppression of religious groups taking place there. China restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale. This religious persecution targets those of every faith. Christians, Muslims, Tibetan Buddhists, and Falun Gong practitioners are all victims of the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to suppress any set beliefs that might compete with the party's ideology. This campaign against religion has had and continues to have devastating consequences for those who simply wish to live according to their conscience. Family Research Council's recently updated publication addresses China's consistent abuses of human rights and explains why they cannot be treated like any other country. Learn more about this issue by visiting frc.org slash China. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, I definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. While the Biden administration is looking to revoke the, the Protect Life rule that was made by the Trump administration, attorneys general from 19 states are looking to intervene in the case to defend the rule before the Supreme Court. Leading the way is Ohio's Attorney General Dave Yost, who joins me now to talk about the joint motion that he filed at the Supreme Court. Attorney General Yost, welcome back to the program. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Well, we're glad to have you. We just got done talking a little bit about what the pro-life rule was in the uh, 
in the administration, and Valerie Huber, who helped write it, uh, was with us. Can you tell us how this got to the Supreme Court? Well, sure. Once the Trump administration went through the very long process of rulemaking, um, and there's a lot of steps to it, uh, they promulgated the rule. It had the force of law, and immediately uh, it was challenged by a number of states led by Democratic attorneys general. And it's been working its way through the courts ever since. Uh at the end of the Trump administration, uh, for the current term of the Supreme Court, uh, the case was accepted, um, granted certiorari, as the lawyers say, but mm-hmm. the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case. Um, and then the Biden administration came in and they said, uh, hey, you know what, we're we're good. We're just uh, – we're not going to do anything. We're not going to uh, defend these lawfully promulgated rules. And so there's nobody there to defend the Trump era rule. Um, and, and, and to provide so some, that's where we are. We don't right, we to, don't want the we don't want the Supreme Court to just dismiss the case at this point. Uh, it needs to be heard. Right. And, and to, to provide some clarity on that for, uh, for for the listeners, the federal government made the rule, but then the administration changed. And so the new administration didn't want to defend the rule. And when you're in you're in court, somebody has to argue to defend it. So that's what you're doing. Right. That's exactly right. Or, or what we're asking permission to do. Um, you know, there's a the, the Justice Department has a duty to defend lawfully enacted statutes, Congress's laws, if you will. And the lawfully made rules by the administrative agencies, and they have just decided that they don't want to do their job. Well, Ohio and uh, my other colleagues have signed under the motion. If the administration uh, doesn't want to do their job, we'll be glad to do it for them. I feel like we hear stories like this more often now where – whether it's attorneys generals or justice departments, just say, even though we have a legal obligation to defend this law, we're not going to do that. Am I right about that? Is this becoming more common? Well, it's especially becoming more common, I think, on the Democratic side, um, because, well, I guess I shouldn't say because, but uh, certainly they have a lower view of the duty uh, of an attorney general to defend the law. But it seems to me that unless the law is completely and obviously on its face unconstitutional, you don't get to substitute your judgment for the judgment of the people who uh, put that law into place. I think that's a really important point, where do, where do laws come from? And, and it really is a question of the rule of law, isn't it? Like, And if you are in a position where the law requires you to defend it, but you refuse to do so, you're kind of making yourself the, the judge in saying this doesn't deserve a defense. This, this law, the process should not be allowed to work because I don't personally like it. Therefore, we're going to render the process null and void by not giving the process an opportunity. Isn't that what we're doing? That, that's precisely what's happening. You're arrogating to yourself the power of the king, the power of the dictator. And while, look, I, if, if Congress passed a law or the Ohio legislature passed a law that said uh, no one shall go to church on Sundays, churches are outlawed, 
even though that was enacted by the General Assembly, I would not defend that in court because it's facially invalid. But a lot of these other laws and rules are within the normal debate about what is and isn't, and that's why we have courts, and that's why you've got to we, – we, we need to establish in our country, not just in the law, but I think in an awful lot of ways, the idea of duty – how often do you hear about anybody talk about duty outside the military, uh, and yet it, it's really a bedrock principle for civil society to be able to operate? I think that's a really powerful point, the, and, and the benefit. It's, it's the same reason we give defenses to people who we think might be, be, be guilty. Because the system, by not having one person unilaterally making the decision that they're guilty or one person unilaterally making the decision that it's unconstitutional, we all benefit from the system that's intended to protect all of our rights. Now, one more question. Do you th how is the rule change going to affect this litigation? Well, ultimately, um, they're going to promulgate a new rule. But remember, that takes time. There's a federal statute that governs how you make a rule, and you have to draw it up. You have to put it out there in public, and it's going to take a while. In the meantime, the rule that's already in place ought to be honored. It ought to be honored, and uh, hopefully it will prevail because, again, there's going to be another administration, and there's going to be another rule change, isn't there? Exactly. Thank you so much, Attorney General Yost from the great state of Ohio. Appreciate your time, and we appreciate your willingness to step in on our behalf on this rule. Godspeed to you. Thank you. Stand firm. And we will stand firm, and we're going to talk about that after the break. We're going to have a conversation, one of my favorite conversations of every week with David Clausen, and we're going to think biblically about loyalty. We just talked about duty. What are we supposed to be loyal to? loyal to ultimately that's the conversation we're going to have coming up right after the break get a trusted perspective on the news of the day every day listen to washington watch with tony perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world join family research council president tony perkins live every weekday on over 800 radio stations across the country or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Representative Vicki Hartzler, Molly Hemingway, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Dana Lash, Sissy Graham Lynch, Pastor John MacArthur, Eric Metaxas, Albert Moeller, and more. Tony is joined by leading political figures, pastors, and policy and culture experts who will inspire you to be engaged and informed on the important issues facing America. For a Christian perspective on the news of the day, tune in to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. Ever since the Supreme Court handed down its infamous Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 that legalized abortion nationwide, a national debate has raged over whether the government should fund abortion. In 1976, Congress banned taxpayer funding of abortion and Medicaid by passing the Hyde Amendment. Several states have followed suit, passing their own restrictions on abortion funding. However, because government funding is a complex system of joint federal and state programs, completely banning taxpayer funding for abortions and abortion businesses like Planned Parenthood is challenging. 
there is still much work to be done to free the American taxpayer from funding the horrific practice of abortion. Family Research Council's new publication clearly explains the Hyde Amendment and why we need to keep it in order to save taxpayers from being forced to fund abortion. Access this important information by visiting frc.org slash Hyde. What's on your daily or weekly reading list? Are you looking for honest and informative commentary from fellow believers on the current issues facing our culture? Family Research Council has just the thing. Check out FRC's blog at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts as well as outside contributors. On our blog, you can read about a wide variety of topics, including religious liberty, life, marriage, family, sexuality, public policy, and the culture. Read up on some of our latest titles like Four Disturbing Trends in Religious Freedom Worldwide, Legitimizing Looting Jeopardizes Liberty for All, The Media Still Doesn't Get It, Conservatives Tend to Vote Conservative, and more. At Family Research Council, our mission is to advance faith, family, and freedom in the culture by helping you live out your faith and to stand for truth. Our blog is here to help you do that. Stay informed and get the resources you need at frcblog.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm is sitting in for Tony Perkins today, and I am joined again by, for one of my favorite conversations of every week, is my conversation on Friday with David Clausen, who is our director of Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview. Did I get that right, David? You did. Like Thank you so much. Okay, I, I got it right. Good. Okay. Well, you know, and, and you wrote a, a, an interesting piece today, and I want to commend people uh, to go read this, uh, frc.org slash blog, and thinking biblically about loyalty. And this is a great subject, and I, I want to start off by, you know, you, you mentioned a uh, story from this week about how the Chinese government is has begun a campaign around what they call the sinification of Christianity, which is essentially how to make Christianity more Chinese. Why is it that you think they're doing this, and what can we learn from what the communists are trying to do with the Bible? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Thanks for having me on again, Joseph, for these these conversations um, that get to follow what you and I write on uh, Wednesday. So for anyone listening to the radio program every Wednesday, you and I have a blog, a Worldview Wednesday blog, that then we get to discuss on Friday. Uh, and this week the, the topic is the, the question of loyalty. And, and one of the, the things, Joseph, that I was thinking about when thinking about the subject of, of loyalty, and I'm sure we'll define that term in a second, um, but it, last June, the Chinese Communist Party did launch a campaign essentially to make Chinese, the, the Chinese citizens more Chinese. And one of the things that they see as a threat, and one of the reasons they put this campaign together was because they believe that Christians, uh, their Christian citizens, are, are more loyal uh, to their faith than to the Communist Party, uh, which is why they actually uh, put out a new translation of the New Testament uh, that really is much more uh, friendly to communist ideology. 
And so it's kind of really sinister what they're doing. But behind that, the reason, the logic behind what they're doing is because they realize that the loves and the affections and the loyalties of their people are first and prime, they're first and foremost with God rather than the party. And they see that as a threat. Well, that's not really a new problem for Christians and political leaders throughout time, is it? This, there, there have been many governments who have said, hey, we see Christianity as a threat, therefore we want to do something about it, right? Oh, absolutely. And one of the recent examples that I think of in the last century was with the Confessing Church, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, and the, the Barman Declaration. It was the Nazi, or excuse me, it was the, the, the German clergymen uh, in Germany when, when Hitler was coming to power. Uh, and they put out a, a statement that Hitler saw as an absolute affront to his authority. And so Christians throughout time, uh, throughout regions, uh, have always had to uh, remind governing authorities uh, that, yes, we're called to be uh, subject to the authorities, but our first and foremost loyalty lies with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's exactly right. And I think that what Christians can take away from this, and, and we could do hours on the historical examples of how right. governments and the church have come into conflict and why that is. But I think the truth in all of this is the fact that Christianity does indeed challenge people's loyalties, that you can have only one ultimate loyalty. And when a government wants your ultimate loyalty, as the Chinese government does, Christianity is a threat. Now, the beauty of governments that have grown up under a Judeo-Christian framework is that they visualize the government that did not demand that. And I think that's one of the great things about America historically. And what the First Amendment does is it says your ultimate loyalty does not have to be to the government. And we as a government are going to protect your right as an individual to serve God in a way that you see fit. And that really is miraculous. But theologically speaking and practically for Christians, we have to recognize that there is a there is competition for our loyalties and someone is ultimately going to get that loyalty. It's either going to be God or it's going to be something else. And all these governments that want it demand that they get it instead of God. Now, David, how would you define what loyalty is in this conversation? Yeah, and I think that's so important when we're having these conversations, whatever the topic is, whether we're, we're you know, a couple of weeks ago we talked about unity, or we talked about safety the week after that, uh, we talked about Christian nationalism. Uh, whenever we're having these conversations, uh, Joseph, we need to define our terms. And I think loyalty, uh, the way Merriam-Webster defines it, I think is a fine definition. They define it as a strong feeling of support or allegiance, uh, just a strong feeling of support or allegiance. Um, and I think we just need to realize, just looking at that definition, that's a morally neutral definition. I think a lot of people just assume uh, that loyalty is a good thing. People talk about loyalty all the time as, as this is something that we should pursue. Uh, but we need to be careful uh, realizing loyalty, uh, like a lot of terms that you and I discuss, that's a morally neutral term. What matters is what are you loyal to? I remember this is the discussion we had about unity. Uh, unity is morally neutral. It depends on what we're being unified around. You can be unified around morally praiseworthy causes and, and some really evil 
evil and reprehensible causes. Same thing with loyalty. Uh, you can be loyal to a gang. Uh, you can be loyal to a sports team. Uh, you can be loyal to a political cause, a political candidate, uh, an ideology. Uh, in the same way, you can be loyal to uh, to God. Uh, so I think we need to, the, the part, a really important part of the conversation is who are you loyal to? And I think Scripture uh, lays that out for us that, yeah, we can have different competing loyalties, but what really matters at the end of the day is where is your ultimate loyalty? And for Christians, we get the answer actually in the first commandment uh, where God says way back in Exodus 20 that you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, that That's a line in the sand, Joseph, that when it comes to our faith, God is d- demanding ultimate allegiance. He's the one that's demanding ultimate loyalty. And anything that threatens that, uh, you know, it, it needs to be any other loyalty is subservient to that first loyalty that we ought to have. Well, and then a any other loyalty would be effectively idolatry. And, and David, I like the, the point that you made bringing in kind of the conversations about unity and safety and all these things. And I hope those who have been listening to this segment and this conversation um, for a while now begin to see the importance of, of, of not assigning um, moral goodness or moral badness to a term. Because things like, you know, unity, is it good? Well, sometimes. Um, safety, is it good? Sometimes. Is in, in loyalty? Is it good? It can be. How about hate, discrimination, all these things, where where we have kind of this emotional reaction to these terms because they have been defined and kind of loaded by the culture. Is hate bad? Well, not if you hate the things that God hates. Is discrimination bad? Well, not if you're discriminating against evil and stopping that from happening, right? And so. In example after example after example, we see how language gets loaded and abused and manipulated so that we end up we end up agreeing with sentiments without really understanding what we're agreeing with. Because, again, the devil is in the details in all of these conversations. Sometimes things are good and sometimes things are bad. And ultimately, God is the one who who determines whether something is good or whether something is bad, because hate is something that God experiences. Discrimination, loyalty is. Well, and actually about that, I want want to go there next. Does the Bible talk about loyalty? Yeah, it does. And before I answer that, Joseph, I'll just briefly say what you just, I just want to underscore what you just said. It's so important in these conversations to understand, uh, you know, that words have meaning. And as Christians, uh, you know, we, we, we read God's word and we understand that there's actually meaning in those words. Uh, we, we, when we read the Bible, we don't want to interpret our own meaning into the text. We want to ask the question, well, what does this passage actually mean? How does God want it uh, to be interpreted? Mm-hmm. You know, I, th- I think it was last week, uh, the senator from New York, Christian Gillibrand, put out a tweet that was widely mocked saying, you know, about infrastructure. Infrastructure equals right. child care. <laughs> infrastructure equals, you know, a bunch yes. of things that frankly – did not mean infrastructure. Everything is infrastructure. And so, and everything was infrastructure, and you know it makes the term literally meaningless. It, it doesn't mean anything anymore. And, and that's why, again, it's important for this discussion about loyalty is to realize well, loyalty in and of itself, it's morally neutral. It just means allegiance um, or, or strong feelings of support to, to someone. And, and so with the Bible, absolutely, to, to your question, what does the Bible say about loyalty? Well, let's go to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Uh, Jesus himself said, no one can serve two masters, for he either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Uh, so we're, again, we're going to have different levels of loyalty in our life. We're going to be loyal to our family. We're going to be orga- loyal to our our employer. But again, our ultimate affections, um, our, our ultimate love, 
uh, th- that needs to be directed towards God. And uh, we could right. give other examples in, in the Bible. The one I go to, Joseph, is the word Joshua. Uh, when he was taught, he you know assumed leadership from Moses, and uh, he was going through the law with the people, and he said, you know, today, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What he was telling the people is ultimately your loyalty, your ultimate allegiance needs to be with Yahweh, uh, the God who has led us out of Egypt and now is leading us into the promised land. So there's all sorts of examples we could point to in the Old and New Testament uh, that speak to where our loyalty and allegiance needs to be as followers of God. I think those are good examples of loyalty. Another one I think of, um, you know, David, his relationship with Jonathan is one that that is often this biblical illustration of friendship and, and certainly loyalty. Also, his relationship with King Saul and this the he. And when Saul, of course, was trying to kill David, ultimately, because he saw David as a threat to his power. But David, though he had opportunities, refused to take violent revenge against Saul. He could have. He could have ended Saul's reign um, and enthroned himself as king over Israel. But he refused to do so because um, God, uh, because God had put him there and he did not feel it was his place to remove that uh, to remove Saul as king. So, though there are many stories illustrating this, does Scripture ever tell us, you know, be loyal? Like it says, you know, do not steal, do not kill. It says to give to the poor, take care of orphans and widows in their need. Does Scripture ever tell us to be loyal? That's a good question, Joseph. I think that there's no, you know, thus saith the Lord to be loyal. But there, there is one passage that I'd like to read in First John chapter 2. Uh, where he does say, do not, this is uh, John, who's, uh, you know, the, one of the last remaining disciples at this point. He does say, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eye and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And then he adds, and the world is passing away with a long, along with all its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So while there's no thus saith the Lord, thou shalt be loyal, uh, there is yeah. uh, many inferences that Scripture says you shall be uh, loyal to God. I would interpret that passage to mean be loyal to God, yes. which is different than be loyal, right? Because I've seen this in so many examples in my life, particularly in the church. I'm a pastor's kid. I've spent a lot of time in the church. I've seen, you know, things happen in churches that shouldn't happen. And on more than one occasion, I have seen people try to cover up sin or manipulate people by essentially asserting authority and saying, well, I'm the guy in charge. And that's usually the situation I'm referring to. And therefore, you should not disagree with me. You should not, um, you know, you should argue with me. You certainly shouldn't confront me with other people because I'm the guy in charge. And that's disloyal, right? Which is kind of this abuse of authority in, in, in my judgment in many cases, just appealing to personal loyalty in order to hide sin or to get people to do what you want rather than appealing to the strength of your argument or the fact that this is what God wants us to do collectively. So... I guess the point I'm trying to get at in in you know in the passage you, you just read there in First John is God does repeatedly tell us don't have any other gods before me, but in, in in various ways, which is a way of saying be loyal to God. 
But he doesn't say be loyal because he doesn't want us to generally be loyal. He wants us to love what he loves, hates what he hates. And David, I'm going to ask you this question another way. Is God loyal? Yeah, that is a a fantastic question. The text that I would point you to with that, um, you know, another synonym I would say, Joseph, of loyalty is is faithfulness, and the the Hebrew word that you find over and over again is hesed, uh, that God is His loving kindness that He shows towards His people. In Second Timothy two thirteen, uh, Paul actually says that being loyal to His people is actually intrinsic. Uh, to God's own character. Second uh, Timothy 2.13, uh, Paul writes, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And, and Joseph, you know, I just hope for anyone who's listening to have this conversation uh, that may be discouraged. Uh, maybe they had a long week this week. Um, but how encouraging is that, that even when you and I are faithless, even when you and I mess up, even when we don't do what we're supposed to do, God is faithful. Now that doesn't give us blanket coverage just to do what we want, you know, what we want, uh, because we can get away with it and just ask God to forgive us. Paul has a lot to say about that in the book of Romans. But even, you know, when we do slip up and make the mistake, Scripture tells us that God's posture towards His people, those who He has called to Himself, is one of love and of loyalty. He He is loyal to us. He's devoted to us. And if you ever doubt that. If there's a Christian listening to us right now have this conversation, if you ever doubt God's love for you, just remember the cross. It was only a couple weeks ago when we celebrated Easter. And if you ever doubt that God is faithful or loyal to you, just remember the cross. Remember that empty tomb uh, that we just celebrated just a couple of weeks ago. So, Joseph, emphatically, the answer is yes. God is faithful to his people. Amen. David Clausen, thank you again for your time. As always, it is a blessing. Really appreciate you being here. And for the rest of you, as you slide into your weekend, remember that God is faithful. God is loyal. You cannot walk away from him. He is always with you. Be encouraged by that. Have a blessed, blessed weekend. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.